Well, good morning, Bintree Church. I'm Pastor Mike. I'm the campus pastor at our Greeley location, and I'm bringing the message this morning. And I love the book of Revelation. I was first introduced to the book of Revelation by our youth pastor growing up when I was 12 years old in the sixth grade. And he said, Mike, I think that you would love to read the book of Revelation. And so I began studying the book of Revelation, and now it's been 26 years has gone by since my youth pastor suggested that I read the book of Revelation. Now here's what I learned. When you're a sixth grader, the book of Revelation is exciting. I mean, there are dragons in the book of Revelation, right? And you can really get into it. And what I've learned is as you read through the book of Revelation, you, you start with this childlike faith where, man, dragons are just fun. And they're cool and they're exciting. And you read Revelation through this lens as a child. And then as you grow, you, you get a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper into Revelation. And so what I want to do first is I, I want to look at a couple of verses and pick up where Pastor Paul has left off. I want to start with Revelation 12.3. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon. For all of our youth that are reading the Bible, like this is exciting stuff, right? This is an entry point into reading scripture. And so it can get really exciting. And as you grow up, you, you start thinking about these types of things. So we have this great fiery red dragon and it has seven heads and 10 horns and its heads were, on its heads were seven crowns. And over the last couple of weeks, Pastor Paul has, has played this out, what this looks like and what this means and what the, the symbolism is here in Revelation. When we think of the book of Revelation, I, I want us to think about it like the Colorado Rockies, the Rocky Mountains. When you first come to Colorado, you are in awe at the Rocky Mountains. They are absolutely beautiful. And you have this perspective that all these mountain ranges all the way across Colorado, beautiful sunsets, Beautiful sunrises. You, you admire the Rockies from the far. And then you can start learning more about the Rockies. Like in our mountains, we have three separate zones that you drive through when you go into the mountains. The first one is the montane zone. And that's a mountain area that's beneath 9,000 feet. And we can experience this, right? If we drive up 34, we get to around 9,000 feet. This is where... Things are beautiful. Life is happening. Trees are growing. Flowers are growing. Deer and elk are running through the fields. And our view changes. No longer are the mountains this great big Rocky Mountain range. It's now we're zeroing in and there's life. And we can take a closer look at it. Above the montane zone is the subalpine zone. This is where Paul and I jeep. It's 9,000 to 11,500 feet. And things start to change up there. Trees change. They're getting thinner. They're getting more bent. They're becoming more beautiful. And so we have these three separate zones. And the final zone way up at the top is the alpine zone, where only grass grows. We're above the tree line. See, when we look at the mountains from afar, we don't see those things. But as we dig in a little bit deeper, we can start going into the mountains and learning more about them and what's up there. And the book of Revelation is a lot like that. 
We have this really big view when we first read it for the first time. And then we dig in a little bit deeper. And we dig in a little bit deeper. And that's what it's like as we work through the book of Revelations. We're, we're going to dig a little bit deeper with each one. And as we work through the book of Revelation, we have brand new believers in both of our congregations that are going to have this really wide view of Revelation. And then we have people that have studied the book of Revelation for years and years. And so they can get into this really detailed version. And so that's what we're going today. My, my hope today is that we are going to look at all these different things. That we're going to have this bird's eye view for our new believers. And that for those of you that have studied the Bible for years, we're going to take a really detailed view. And that's my hope for this morning. So what I want to do is I want to pick up where pa- Pastor Paul's left off with Revelations 13.1. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten crowns, and on its heads were blasphemous names. The reason I want to pick up where Pastor Paul left off over the last couple of weeks is we have a beast coming up out of the sea. All right, That's what I want you to see this morning. We have a, the beast coming up out of the sea. Revelation 13, 11 says this, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. So this picture that I want to paint for you this morning is we have a beast coming up out of the sea, we have a beast coming up out of the earth, and then we're going to pick up our scripture in Revelation 14, 1, verses 1 through 5. And before we dig into our scripture this morning, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for wisdom. As we come to these verses, as we come to the symbolism, as we look at what all this means in in Revelation chapter 14, Lord, we pray for wisdom. We pray that you open our eyes to what we need to see in our Bibles today. You open our ears to what we need to hear this morning. Lord, calm our hearts from any fears or anxieties we may be feeling so that we can hear your still, small voice this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is where I want to pick up. We have a beast coming out of the sea. We have a beast coming out of the earth. And then turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, but no one could learn the song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths, and they are blameless. This is the picture that I want you to get this morning. There's three things that I want to look at. Three observations. Number one, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. See, over the past couple of weeks, Pastor Paul has pointed out that there was a beast coming out of the sea. There was a beast coming out of the earth. But where was Jesus? Standing on Mount Zion. Standing on his holy mount. 
The next observation that I want us to see is the 144,000 are marked with the name of the Lamb and the name of the Father. Last week, if you remember, Pastor Paul talked about the mark of the beast. Now we're seeing a different mark. We're seeing the mark of Jesus and the Father written on the foreheads of the 144,000. Here's the third observation. The 144,000 are the first fruits for God and the Lamb. The 144,000 are the first fruits for God and the Lamb. When we think about first fruits and what that means, we get a picture from Genesis to Revelation about first fruits. And I want us to go all the way back into Genesis and take a look at this. Genesis 4.4 says this, And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. If you remember from Genesis, Cain just gave some of his offering, but Abel gave his first fruits. And so we have this picture throughout Scripture about first fruits and what that looks like. Some of your Bibles may say that the, the Lord not only deserves the first fruit, but he shows favor on the first fruit. He shows regard to the first fruit. He accepts the first fruit. And God wants our first fruit. In the Old Testament, God teaches about giving 10%. We call this a tithe. We are to give 10% of our paychecks, not after we've paid our house payment and our car payment and our food and our bills and our credit card bills, but the first fruits of our, of our labor. And we see this for the first time in Genesis 14, 20, part B. And Abram, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is the first time that we see a percentage attached to an offering. It comes in Genesis 14, 19 through 20. And Abram gave a tenth of everything. As time moved on, our giving changes. And just like us, we, we start and we try to give just a little bit and we work our way up to 10%. And as we grow as Christians, as we grow as followers of Christ, we begin to give more than 10%. And we see this in, in Scripture, Deuteronomy 12.6. You are to bring there your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tents and personal contributions, your vow offerings and free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. See, it changes just a little bit. It started out as 10%, and then it became more and more, and you give more and more. By the end of the Old Testament, God does something amazing. And this is what I want you to see. This is one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, Malachi 3.10. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. This is one of the very few times in Scripture where God says to test him. To test him. Test me and see. Bring in your tent and see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. God gives us this opportunity to test him. 
And if you're following along in your sermon notes, it is a blessing that God gives us. A blessing. So we leave the Old Testament in Malachi 3.10 and we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. The point is this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. I'm here to tell you, if you came today and you've got your tithe check in your pocket and you're like, man, I don't want to give this God. I don't want to give this to the church. That's not what God's looking for. He wants a cheerful giver. When you, when you have your offering in your pocket and you're on the Bentry app and you're getting ready to submit that, God doesn't want you to say, man, I don't want to give this money. This is my money. God wants a cheerful giver. He wants you to give cheerfully to his work. So we have regular tithing and we have offerings. And for those of you that are giving to the push against the gate, I want to personally thank you. Because you're giving above and beyond your tithes and offerings. God loves a cheerful giver, and it's because of your gifts that we're able to do ministry in Greeley, Colorado. And so I want to personally thank you for what you're giving. Turn back with me to Revelations chapter 14, verses 4 through 5. This is what John says, These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths, and they are blameless. These 144,000 are the first fruits redeemed out of humanity. I mean, this is beautiful. God's saying, These are my people. They are the ones coming out of humanity as an example. And they give us the example of no lie being found in their mouths and being completely blameless. Then the chapter 14 takes a turn. And I want you to see this turn. We know it's a turn because John says, Then I saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people, he spoke with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. John gets this picture. He gets this vision of an angel flying overhead with this pronouncement that there's an eternal gospel for every nation, every tribe, every language, and every people. See, Jesus' death and resurrection is sufficient for everyone. Every single person. It doesn't matter the language you speak, where you come from in, in the world. Jesus' death and resurrection, the eternal gospel, is available to everyone. See, at Bentry Church, we have a very unique opportunity. And I want you to understand this. In Loveland, in the Thompson Valley School District, about 70% of the students are white. 20% are Hispanic. 
So about 10% of your students' classes are made up of non-whites and non-Hispanics. And that's in Loveland. In Greeley, it's, it's very diverse. And I want you to see this. In Greeley, in our schools, there are 78 different languages spoken. So if you move to Greeley or if you are, are from Greeley, we have 78 languages spoken in our schools. Imagine learning in that type of environment where your classmates speak a different language and there's potentially 78 different languages being spoken. But here's the thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ transcends all those languages. Every single one of those languages. I want to look at a couple of statistics this morning and these are from the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I want to define a couple of words for us to see. A people group is an ethno-linguistic group with a common self-identity that is shared by the various members. There are two parts to the word, ethno and linguistic. Language is a primary and dominant identifying factor of a people group. But there are other factors that determine or are associated with ethnicity. Here's what I want you to understand. In plain language, a people group is a, a group of people that speak the same language and they have the same ethnicity. All right, are you with me? Same language, same ethnicity. So when the International Mission Board looks at this, there are 11,760 different people groups. 11,760 distinct people that speak the same language that are ethnically the same. 11,760 different groups throughout the world. Now, this number is shocking. Of these 11,760 people groups, 7,084 of them have less than 2% evangelical Christians. Think about that. 7,000 groups of people that speak the same language are from the same area and they are less than 2% Christian. 7,000 different people groups. Now we can break that down even further. 3,174, according to the International Mission Board, are unreached and unengaged. Now we, we need to define what those words mean. What is unreached and unengaged. This is how the IMB defines it. A people group is unreached when the number of evangelical Christians is less than 2% of the population. All right, so we have a people group. They're out there in the world. There's less than 2% Christian. This is defined as unreached. Unengaged, it is further called unengaged when there is no church planning strategy consistent with evangelical faith and practice under, underway. So here's what I want you to understand. An unreached people group is less than 2% Christian. Unreached and unengaged means that we are not planting any churches right now. There are no strategies for reaching these people. Now here's where our hearts should break. We have 392 unreached, unengaged people groups that have over 100,000 people in their group. 
392 distinct groups of people that speak the same language, that are from the same area, and they have a population over 100,000. And less less than 2% are Christian, and nobody is planting churches. Not the Southern Baptist, not the Methodist, not the Lutheran. No evangelical presence for church planting. So let's put this number, 392 people groups, with over 100,000 people into some context. This last year, Greeley broke 100,000 people. So there are 392 people groups the size of Greeley, less than 2% Christian, and no church planting happening. This is amazing to me. We have a lot of work to do because the Bible says The gospel, the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ is available to every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And we have over 392 groups of people, more than 100,000 apiece, that don't have the gospel of Jesus. And nobody's planting churches. When we look at these verses, verses 6 and 7, Not only does the angel say the gospel's available to every tribe, every nation, every language, and every people, but there are three distinct things that he says. Three angelic commands. Number one, fear God. Number two, give God glory. And number three, worship God. When we look at this verse 7, turn with me. He spoke with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who has made heaven and earth, the sea and the spring of waters. So what does it mean to fear God? This very first command, what does it mean to fear God? Martin Luther explained it this way. Servile fear is the fear that a prisoner has towards his captor. All right, so there's this very distinct fear that if you're a prisoner, you are fearful of the person that is your captor, right? They can torment you, they can uh, persecute you, they can do all sorts of bodily harm to you. That is one type of fear, being in fear of your life and of your, of your well-being. The second fear is fear. Philo fear. Philo fear is a fear that a child has towards a parent and does not want to disappoint them. All right, so do you see the two distinct differences? One's a fear of life and body. One's a fear of disappointment. It's the second fear that Martin Luther says that we need to have when we talk about having a fear of God. We should have a healthy fear of disappointing a holy God. It's explained this way in Proverbs. Proverbs verse 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. To fear a holy God and to not want to disappoint him is the beginning of knowledge. 
Right? We have a holy God, and until we understand that we are sinful people, there's not a fear there. But there's a healthy fear that we have when we recognize that we are sinners in front of a holy God. And thus begins our knowledge. Proverbs 1.7 So the first one is we are to fear God. The second command is to give God glory. John Piper says it this way. In order for God to get the glory, we have to do good as one does it who is depending on God's strength. Not mere good deeds, but good deeds done in a spirit that comes from a joyful dependence on God's help. This is what glorifies God. So think about it this way. If you're just out doing good deeds, that's wonderful, right? We all want to go do good deeds. But if we do good deeds dependent upon God, then God gets the glory, right? Because one is us. Pat ourselves on the back. Look what I've done. I did the good deed today. The other is depending upon God and saying, God, I can't do this without you. And according to John Piper, this is what glorifies God when we depend upon him. Number three, we are to worship God. This is what John said in verse, chapter 4, verse 23 through 24. John chapter 4, verse 23 through 24. But an hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. See, when we come to a worship service, worshiping God is more than just raising our hands, right? Worshiping God is more than just singing songs. Worshiping God is more than just giving our tithes and our offerings. To truly worship God, we are to worship with our spirit, and we're to worship in truth. And so this angelic command is threefold. Fear God, give him glory, and worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now turn in your Bible to verse 8. We see a change again. John says, And another, a second angel, followed, saying, It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. So John sees this second angel, and, and this verse is really interesting to me. A second angel followed, saying, It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. See, we've wondered for years, who is Babylon the Great? Who is it? Pastor Paul, over the last couple of weeks, he's talked about who is the Antichrist. Right? Some, he, he told us last week, some said it's Nero, some said it's Hitler, some say it's former president, some say it's the current president. Right? We have all these ideas who the Antichrist is. And for years, we've also wondered, who is Babylon the Great? Some people say it's, it's a city, it's an area. Babylon the Great, it's Rome. It's the Jerusalem. 
It's Babylon. People have, have said that Babylon the Great is these different cities. Some people have said, well, no, it's the governments. It's the Roman Empire. Some have said, no, it's, it's not the city. It's not the governments. Babylon the Great is a religion. Some scholars say it's the Roman Catholic Church. Other traditions say, no, it's traditional Christianity. So it's, some believe it's a culture. Some believe it's a religion. Some think it's a government. But here's what we know, what the Bible says. Whoever Babylon the Great is, not only does it fall, but she made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality. So whatever this is, whatever this Babylon the Great is, all the nations leave God. They turn from God. They're sexually immoral towards a holy God. And that brings wrath. So who could turn all the nations from God? See, we need to be careful. when We, we could look at verse 8 and we could get hung up there. And Pastor Paul has talked about this is an open-handed issue. The Bible does not tell us who Babylon the Great is. There are many different theories as to who that might be. But we do know that whoever Babylon the Great is, they turn people from God. Now we see another angel, verse 9 through 12. And another angel, a third angel, followed them and spoke with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. We're going to look at verses 9 through 10. And another, a third angel, followed them and spoke with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. See, there is a consequence to taking the mark of the beast. There's a consequence. Pastor Paul told us a couple of weeks ago, people will take the mark of the beast just so they can survive, so that they can buy and they can sell. They can buy food and they can sell goods. There's a benefit to taking the mark of the beast and that's survival. But there's a consequence. The consequence is they will drink the wine of God's wrath and it will be poured out in full strength. I love this verse, verse 10. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Next Friday, I'll be celebrating 10 years of sobriety. And when I read this verse, it has a whole different reason. For me. 
It's fascinating. God's wrath will be poured out full strength. My sponsor has often said, it took 15 years to get the water out of good scotch. Why would we put ice and add water back into it? Why would we dilute what is good? And so when we read this, what John is saying is this anger, this wrath that God's about to pour out is full strength. This wine, this wrath is not watered down. This is everything. We've read through Scripture that there's strong drink and there's wine. And John is saying God's wrath will not be watered down. His anger will be full strength. See, there is a consequence to taking the mark of the beast. And this is the consequence. Those that take the mark of the beast will receive every inch of wrath from God. And look at what that means at the end of verse 10. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb. This wrath that's that's about to be poured out, this torment that they're going to experience will be a fire and sulfur. It'll be in the sight of Jesus. It'll be in the sight of angels. And we pick up in verse 11, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. When we look at verse 11, we need to talk about something. We need to talk about annihilationism. Annihilationism is, is a false teaching. Annihilationism is this idea that after the final judgment, the consciousness of the lost are completely destroyed. They're annihilated. So what we have to be careful of is annihilationism is being taught in some of our churches. That there's this idea that when you, when you die and you're judged, after the judgment, God completely wipes you out. That's not what Scripture teaches. Look what verse 11 says. Verse 11 says this, And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image, or anyone who receives the mark of its name. There's no way to jump from that verse and say, well, God's going to completely destroy them. God's going to completely wipe out their consciousness. It's a false teaching. Scripture is so clear on this. So we have to be careful when we look at this. Forever and ever, no rest day or night. There is no room for misunderstanding here. The suffering of the lost is eternal. Now knowing this, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I want you to write this down on your sermon notes. I want you to write down the names of three friends or family that you know that are lost. Three names of friends or family that you know that are lost. See, our hearts should break over every single name written down on your sermon notes. 
every name that you write down, our hearts should break. We should be praying for each of these people. See, as Pastor Paul said last week, taking the mark of the beast means eternal torment. Taking the mark of the Lord is eternal life. And so if you look around, if every person in this room wrote down three names, just three names, are you okay with them being eternally tormented? Because there's only two sides. There's those that take the mark of the beast, and there's those that follow Jesus and take his mark. That's it. When we think about these three people and these three names or these three families, will you invite them to church? Will you pray with us to tell them about Jesus? See, we know this. We know that those that are written down, those that are lost, will suffer eternal sufferings. And when we look at verse 12, look what it says. This calls for endurance from the saints who keeps God's commands and their faith in Jesus. This calls for endurance. See, we can't sit back and just allow people to go to hell. We can't do that. For the unbeliever, there will literally be a hell. For the believer, they're going to witness the unleashing of the full wrath of God at full strength. And the angel says, this calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. When I was in middle school, I went on a mission trip to Chicago to a suburb called Lawndale. And I was working at a community health clinic. As I walked into this community health clinic, a fight broke out between a man and a woman. For the first time, I saw domestic abuse in the middle of the street. Just a full-on brawl. I was 13 years old. I was like 120 pounds. And this guy was wailing on this woman. And I ran inside, and I told the nurse, and I, I said, there's a man outside, he's hitting a woman, we, we have to call 911. And she said, honey, that happens here all the time. I said, we have to call the police. She said, there's nothing the police are going to do. Just let it happen. See, when we see injustice like that, it calls for endurance. When it feels like there is nothing that we can do, we have to have endurance. Verse 13, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. We, we get this beatitude, this blessing, that those who die from this point forward are blessed. Blessed because all the work that they've done goes before them. There's a blessing. 
So there's four things that I want you to get from this message this morning. Number one, God deserves our first fruits. God deserves our tithes and our offerings from the first of our paychecks. Throughout Scripture, God shows favor upon those who give their first fruits. Number two, God loves a cheerful giver. When you give, don't give with this attitude of, man, I don't want to give my money. Give from the attitude of, this is God's money. God's provided it to us. We're giving back. We're giving from our first fruits. This is a thing of joy. This is an act of worship. God loves a cheerful giver. Number three, we are called to do three things. Number one, fear God. We've talked about that. Number two, give God the glory. Number three, worship God in spirit and in truth. And here's the fourth thing that I want you to get this morning. Annihilationism is a false doctrine. There is an eternal punishment for those who take the mark of the beast. There are only two sides. You're either with Jesus or you're against Jesus. That's it. Those are the two sides. You're either marked by God or you're marked by the beast. When you look at your sheet of paper, I want you to look at those three lost friends or family members. Will you tell them about Jesus? Here's what I want you to see. There are about 200 people in the Loveland worship this morning. If all 200 invited those three people, that's 600 people. Our congregation in Loveland would start with 200. If we each invited three, that's 600 people. That's a total of 800 people. All right, now let's look at the Greeley campus. In Greeley, we have 50 people attending. If we each invited those three people that we've written down, we would have the original 50 plus another 150. We would be at 200 people in Greeley. All right, so think about that. If we just invited each three people, our church as Bent Tree Church, Greeley and Loveland, would be a thousand people. Isn't that amazing? Can you invite just three people? Will you invite just three people? Now, I don't want you to take this challenge and say, well, I'm going to invite three friends that go to a church somewhere else. Right? We don't want a church swap. We don't want, as Pastor Paul has said, steeple chasers, right? We want to see lives changed. We want to see baptisms. We want to see people that are lost going to hell, being saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Will you invite those three people that are listed on your sermon notes? Will you invite them to church next week? Let's pray. Lord, we have friends and family that are lost. Our community is lost around us. We pray that they will come to a saving faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for the courage to invite just three friends and families to church. We pray that our church will grow just, not just in number, but in lives changed. We want to see more baptisms. Lord, we pray for both of our locations, Loveland and Greeley, we pray that you will bless our first fruits, bless our tithes and offerings. 
Lord, may you bless Bentry Church abundantly, not just financially, but through volunteers and leaders and disciples made. May our fear of you glorify you. May our worship be in spirit and truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.